Hello and welcome to Economics in 10 with Pete and Gav. In each podcast we'll be looking at a famous economist and asking 10 questions that will hopefully inform you and get you thinking about their influence in modern society today. So, the first question of this second episode is, who are we looking at today and why is he still so relevant? Pete. So Gav, today we are looking at John Maynard Keynes. So, if we had an economics Mount Rushmore, he would definitely be on it. I think Adam Smith would have been from last week as well. So we might be, I don't know, I wonder if we're like shooting our ball a bit early. <laughs> anyway, bit of a genius. Uh, We've got the, two spaces left though. Two spaces left, yeah we have. Could be you one day. Maybe. Um, so we've got uh, oh, quick few descriptions of Keynes from other people who knew him, his contemporaries. Very much a bit of a genius. The philosopher Isaiah Berlin described him as the cleverest man he ever met. Bertrand Russell, no less, said he feared arguing with Keynes. He described it as taking his life in his hands. Mm. So, obviously a very clever chap. and probably who, So who was the first one? Isaiah Berlin, not Irving Berlin. Okay. <laughs> who is he? He's a philosopher. Oh, right. <laughs> 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 yeah. He's quite a famous philosopher. Is he? Yeah. Okay. Well, because yeah. it would have been good to know who he was hanging around with. Uh, George to, Bernard Shaw was another make, one. To make that claim. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> if he's hanging around with stupid people. <laughs> but clearly not, because he's a, he's a philosopher. So anyway, anyway carry Another on. one, just to sort of rack up the clever people saying Keynes was even cleverer than them. George Bernard Shaw, chap who uh, wrote Pygmalion, My Fair Lady. Good. Um, as it became. Man and Superman. Is that enough? <laughs> yeah. uh, so anyway, probably uh, the most quotable economist we will come across. Uh, by the way, I did actually, because we're sort of moving into the modern age now, there are clips of Keynes himself speaking on YouTube. And oh my God, you know, last week I said, I did a bit of a Keynes impression. Mm. I said he was probably quite posh. He really yeah, was Yeah, he's very posh, posh isn't he? Yeah, yeah, I mean, really posh. Got that kind of old school poshness that, even the royals don't have these days. Yeah. Uh, so, just a few of his quotes, just to kick us off, get us a bit of a flavour of Keynes the man. Uh, I love this one as well. When my information changes, I alter my conclusions. What do you do, sir? Now, funny enough, Pete, I, I thought this quote might come up. Oh. <laughs> and uh, I looked up something, quotes inquisitor or something. Right. Some person, they go and investigate quotes. Search engine. Yeah. And they reckon that he, it's, ne- it's never been proven that he actually said that. Oh. The first person who said that officially was Paul Samuelson, who is a, you know, obviously a fellow me, economist, yeah. who was Some, a follower of Keynes. Right. Okay. But he later said, after saying it the first time, that he attributed it to Keynes. Right. So there's a few like bits of evidence that suggest he mm. might have said something like that, but in this day and age, it's a great quote. Okay. Especially in Brexit times, isn't it? I hate, you know, we said this last time, but this idea, when the facts change, I well, change my mind, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I stand corrected. I've got another one, which is, uh, I, I don't want us to come across as anti-Brexit. I think that we don't alienate sort of half the UK. No, I think that's very audience. important. But uh, here's another one which I think is kind of relevant. Uh, People will do the rational thing 
but only after exploring all other alternatives. Quite like that one. The next one, I think, could be a strap line for our podcast. Education, the inculcation of the incomprehensible into the indifferent by the incompetent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. That's our day job. Uh, and the last one, I, I, I could, you know, I could go on and on. There's this, this hundred. He's very sort of quotable chap, a bit like Churchill. You know, there seems to be sort of millions of quite witty quotes. Uh, if economists could manage to get themselves thought of as humble, competent people on a level with dentists, that would be splendid. Mm. He has a very good point. Yeah, so I like that. One last quote, uh, and this is him writing to George Bernard Shaw. And this gives you a sense of, he was a pretty, how dare I say, confident chap. And that's to put it mildly. And he says, he was writing to George Bernard Shaw in the 30s. And he said, you have to know that I believe myself to be writing a book on economic theory, which will largely revolutionise, not I suppose at once, but in the course of the next 10 years, the way the world thinks about economic problems. And he wasn't wrong. No, he wasn't wrong. And he's describing there the general theory, uh, which we'll come to uh, a little bit later on, which very much shaped uh, post-war economics for a good 20 or 30 years. So he's pretty cocky, but maybe with a lot to be cocky about. Yeah. And one thing I thought, is you've heard about the Queen, apparently, and this is probably fake news as well, but apparently a quote attributed to her is she went to a reception at the LSE, uh, so plenty of economists and academics knocking around, and it was just around the time of the 2008 crash. Yes. I think she yes. lost out a bit because she's obviously got loads of wealth held in sort of financial assets and so on. So she's probably taking it quite personally. Uh, and she said, why did no one predict this? But I bet if Keynes was around, he would have done it. He would have been that one person who yeah. did predict it. And no one else would have listened. And gone, no, 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 it's, it's Keynes. It's all right. But I bet he would have done Nice first impression of this podcast. <laughs> don't worry there's more to come there's more to come I'm sure a uh, good first impression thanks thanks very much uh, so uh, we're going to move on now should we, talk, should we do a little biog yeah do a biog and then we'll get on to his major thoughts okay so in terms of a biog I could go on and on a very rich life but we'll, we'll do a bit of a well we'll try and sort of whiz through it a little bit so he's born in 1883 to in Cambridge Born to a sort of upper middle class family. Uh, he wins a scholarship to Eton. And uh, the first love of his life uh, was apparently Harold Macmillan's older brother. And he was at Eton. Yeah, so, small world, eh? <laughs> <laughs> he never had it so good. <laughs> oh. uh, apparently he was socially popular, but also very clever. It was quite obvious he was clever even then. Um, there's a quote I could read out from a, a t- one of his teachers who sort of wrote about Quaines, uh, Quaines, Keynes. Shall I read it out? Yeah, go on. His reading had been immense. His selection was admirable, and wit and some well-calculated indiscretions illuminated an astonishingly mature performance. We were listening to something much beyond the range of the normal clever six-form boy. If you wrote that as a teacher... What would be your readings between the lines? He was a bit of a knob. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, but it's, it's sort of a little bit irritating. Okay. What do you think? No, no, well, yeah, maybe a bit arrogant. A bit arrogant, Mar- yeah. Maybe. I, I think I said that before, no lack of confidence. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so from Eton, he uh, gets a scholarship to King's College to read maths. And he's a busy chap while he's there. Um, president of the Cambridge Union. President of the Liberal Club. Um, important to say that, actually, because I think occasionally he's sort of... To the ill-informed, sometimes wheeled out as a bit of a socialist, almost. And he very much was not. You know, very much a liberal, uh, freedom of thought. Not really about the government controlling the commanding heights of the economy, like a planned economy. Uh, but we'll come to that a little bit later on. He was sporty, uh, into his tennis, golf, rowing, horse riding. And he was also, and this will become more relevant later, in a secret club. Right. Have you ever been in a secret club? <laughs> No. Well, I mean, we had what was known uh, as the G.H. Wilson Posse back in the day in Bishop Stortford. The G.H. Wilson Posse? Yeah, the G.H. Wilson shop uh, in Bishop Stortford. If anybody from Bishop Stortford is obviously listening to this, will know the history of the G.H. Wilson sweet shop. It was a marvellous sweet shop, and sadly it's now no longer there. Uh-huh. And we were the G.H. Wilson Posse. So how old were you at the time? 17, 16, 15. 17? <laughs> And did you used to hang around outside? Did you we used to just to go there a lot. Okay. And then, and then the people who knew about it, my little group, we called ourselves, maybe just me, the G.H. Wilson Posse. We had a little song as well. <laughs> <laughs> Called the G.H. Wilson Posse song, which used uh, the young MC's, um, I think, Principal's Office uh, single as the backtrack to right. that song. Okay. Yeah. I've got it somewhere on tape. So, was it secret? Or was it just no one cared? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no one cared. So anyway, he was a member of uh, a secret of Cambridge society um, called the Cambridge Apostles. Imagine that now, Pete. Imagine that now, that secret society... Yeah. And the tentacles all over economics. What do you mean? Well, I'm just saying, like, you think about the conspiracy theories related oh, right, to I Trump I mean. well, and all that stuff like that. Well. And then you've got this secret society. Well, it's interesting you should say that. Okay, well, I'm glad Because I, actually, all the members of this secret society um, included two people who went on to be uncovered as Soviet spies. No way. Guy Burgess and Anthony Blunt. Mm. I mean, loads of other people were in this society over the years as well, like Tennyson, I think possibly Wittgenstein as well. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, loads of people were in this society over the years. You, you, it was invite only, as you can imagine. Male only, up until the early 70s. Uh, and when I say male only, there was also uh, a homoerotic element to it. Well, it definitely was in, in Keynes' time as well. Um, so whilst he was at um, university at Cambridge... He was attracted to the philosophy of G.E. Moore. You know anything about G.E. Moore? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> Neither do I, really. <laughs> I just keep on thinking about secret society. I bet there was a lot of passing of the port going on. Uh, what do you think? Well, when we come to our food and drink round, okay, we're gonna we're gonna experience some of the food and drink that the apostles would have experienced. Love it. Okay. Um, so the if you had the Bloomsbury set, yes, yeah, there was a wolf in there. <laughs> it's more than one wolf. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Virginia Woolf and Leonard, mm. uh, but the Bloomsbury set. A number of the people in the Bloomsbury set were also 
apostles when they were at Cambridge mm. with canes. So Lytton Strakey. Would they be described as the establishment or not? Um, yes, I think that would be fair to say. Uh, I actually read a, a, a killer statistic about that, actually. About 14% of previous Apostle members went on to become uh, MPs. That's, that's a big stat. But what I don't get about that is, if it's a secret society, how do we know all about the membership? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's probably why they were caught as spies. <laughs> <laughs> were they caught as spies? Yeah, they must yeah, have been caught. Yeah, they were. Yeah. They were exposed, yeah. Well, maybe well that, having said that, Anthony Blunt, you must know this story. He went on after sort of spying to become the Queen's sort of private art curator. Right. Some title for it, like the reader of the Queen's pictures or something. Yeah, before he was uncovered. Mm. So yeah, I mean, they, they did very much end up as members of the establishment. Although at the time, you could argue they were a sort of deviant group. Obviously, human homosexuality was illegal mm. then, and it was practiced quite widely uh, amongst this group. But as one of our colleagues uh, used to say. Loose lips sink ships. <laughs> and and that's okay. probably what happened there. There was probably some loose lips going on. Right. Okay. Uh, so it was a secret site, but also um, it was a debating club. And I suppose what was noteworthy about, about it in terms of Keynes's future career, there's a strong emphasis on freedom of thought. And Keynes was very much a free thinker. There's another quote by him. I can't remember the exact detail of it, but it was more to do with the difficulty in coming up with new theories is really getting rid of the old theories from your mind, in mm. other words. Um, I saw one with him where it said, if there, I don't know who said it, but the about if there were seven economists... No, there were five economists in the room, there'd be seven solutions, and two of them would be from Keynes, uh-huh. which I think is quite a good, good one linked to that. Yeah, I like that, I like that. Uh, so, there's obviously links between this group and the Bloomsbury set, uh, but we'll come to that a little bit later on. Um, but I suppose the link, link sort of philosophically, between the Bloomsbury set and the Cambridge Apostles is this idea of freedom of thought, and also perhaps con- a challenging conventional morality, just challenging the status quo, despite, as you said, many of these people going on to become uh, establishment figures. So, leaves Cambridge in 1904, gets a first in maths. Uh, he's already by then got a growing interest in uh, economics. Uh, whilst he's th- uh, at Cambridge, he comes across Marshall. Come across, you remember Marshall? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Pigou. Yes. Yeah, both sort of potential future episodes there. I think uh, so. Uh, and he, so another quote by Keynes, he writes to, I don't know whether it is Lytton Strakey or Strachey, I don't really know. My pronunciation is coming from <laughs> Jeremy Paxman University Channel. <laughs> okay. And I would, he says it so confidently, I assume it must be right. Yeah. So I'm going to say Strakey, because I think that's what he said. So Keynes writes to Strakey, I find economics increasingly satisfactory, and I think I am rather good at it. I want to manage a railway or organise a trust, or at least swindle the investing public. Hmm. Well, yeah. some more was of the man there. <laughs> I read, though, that he... Had he never sat an exam on economics, did he? And he only did about eight weeks worth or something of studying of economics. Yeah. I so I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it? That he's one of these big economic thinkers. Yeah. And yet, actually, didn't study that much of it. Yeah. Maybe that's an advantage, though. 
Because it sounds going back to the. I know that sounds odd. It's no, a, it's probably a good point. This isn't defeats it? purpose of this whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, what I guess what I'm saying is you can look at problems afresh. Yeah. You're not part of some sort of established paradigm of how one should think about economics. Um, so, uh, 1906, he takes the civil service exam and passes second in the country. Um, but he was enraged uh, because he got lower than expected performances in maths and economics. Later quote from him, but it could be fake news, like the one we came out with later. He said, that I, well, that the reason for that is I knew more than the examiners. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> to be fair... That sometimes happens with school exams, I think. I don't want to be controversial about it. Right, okay. Sometimes when students who are so good, you know they're really good, and they might get not as good as mark as you think, and they go back for a remark, and sometimes they go up, and you just think, just don't think the examiner who first marked it has really understood the points they were making. Right. It's a bit controversial. Okay. But it, I think it does happen. Every time you come up with a stat, as you did in the last episode... Yeah. When you say either he was the second or the third, I always want to know who, who, the, who the first is, and I bet you don't know who the first is. Well, I bet that, that, that probably that, that name's probably been you know, part of history well, now. But I think it would take some considerable research to sort of find out. No, who I know. Came but... first in the civil service exam. <laughs> Do you know what? That, I feel like you've set me a challenge there. Yeah. Okay. You know, perhaps I should okay, go in the future. By the way, not related to this, but. Killer question for you, and it's kind of one where I'm trying to embarrass you. That's fine. Um, what proportion of the world's money supply is in the form of notes and coins? Well, I found this out the other day. Now? Yeah. I'm going to go for 25%. No, 10%. 10%. Mm. Isn't that amazing? It is quite mm. amazing. Yeah. But I know that cash is on the down. Yeah. Interesting, though, because I suppose it is related in a way, because I expect that's one of the things that has changed quite dramatically since Keynes' time. I mean, a lot of money even then would not have had physical form, but I think there's been a dramatic shift away from that even since then. What I'm driving at with that is like I did with uh, with Smith, rather, is we need to see Keynes in his time, Mm -hmm. rather than just imagine we can take him and his theories and adapt him to the modern day, and expect it uh, to shed sort of perfect light on things. And I, I was also thinking the same thing about how, I'm sure you'll get onto this, but how maybe Keynesianism is maybe slightly different to the thoughts of Keynes. Yeah. But we'll get onto that, I'm sure. We will get onto that. Okay. We definitely will get onto that. So he passes civil service exam second behind, we don't know. But we will try and find out. <laughs> uh, and then his first uh, mission, if you like, is that he is um, a an official at the India office, which he found really boring. Okay. I'll come later on, because there is a round, I think I'm right in saying, where we funny stories, and I've got a funny story. Okay. Well, I'm not sure it's that funny, <laughs> but I'm going to try it out anyway. Uh, so... He doesn't really like that, so he comes back to Cambridge and a combination of his dad and Pigu uh, pay for him to be there. He tries to get a fellowship at um, Cambridge. He can't... They don't quite let him in straight away. So they pay for him because they really want him to be there. And he uh, starts to lecture in economics, tutors a bit, writes a bit. 
1910, he's campaigning for the Liberals. Yeah. By the way, okay. little known fact, he was offered uh, in the 1940s, I think it was the 1940s, to uh, be the MP for Cambridge or to stand mm. as, a, as the Lib candidate for Cambridge. Yeah. Okay. But, but he didn't. Yeah. Um, and he's not very keen on politicians anyway. There's a brilliant quote here. He's, I can't, I'm not sure who he's writing to here, but he says, you have not, I suppose, oh no, I do remember he's writing to, Duncan Grant, right. another early lover. Uh, you have not, I suppose, ever mixed with politicians at close quarters. They are awful. Their stupidity is inhuman. The rest of them had minds and opinions as deplorable as their characters. Mm, I think that's a good quote because people look at the batch now as being the worst ever. Yeah. And maybe they've always been pretty awful. Yeah. Yeah. Kane certainly thought so. Uh, so not long after that, there is the outbreak of war, World War One. And uh, Keynes's Bloomsbury set are very much pacifists, or certainly a number of them are conscientious objectors. And uh, there's some sort of doubt about his take on that, whether he was, because, or certainly there was some ambivalence there, because he ends up during wartime working in the Treasury as an assistant to Lloyd George's economic advisor. So he works at the Treasury throughout the war. Um, and he is there, or sort of there or thereabouts, at the Treaty of Versailles. Now, uh, how aware are you of what the Treaty of Versailles is? I know a little bit about that. It's about the repayment that Germany had to do. That's the part war. of the treaty, yeah. Well, that's about as much as I know. <laughs> well, it's just, <laughs> so it's the treaty that sort of... The end of any big major conflagration, yeah. the, you know, all the, the winners right. sit down and sort of tell the losers what they're going to have to do from yeah. now on. And part of that, you're absolutely right, was about the reparations that Germany would have to make uh, to um, France, I think, in the main, uh, perhaps also to um, Britain as well. Um, but he is not happy at all, Keynes, this is, with the terms that are laid out in the treaty. This is his big breakthrough, isn't it? This is his big breakthrough. This is where he achieves a certain sort of fame slash uh, notoriety. He resigns um, from his uh, position at, uh, Lloyd George, uh, with Lloyd George, says, I've had enough, don't agree with what's going on here. And shortly after that, he uh, writes his, one of his most famous works, The Economic Consequences mm. of the Peace. And you know what I was saying earlier, like, I'll bet he would have predicted the financial crash. To a certain degree, you could argue he kind of foretold, uh, not, not quite the rise of Hitler, but how this would lead eventually to more sort of conflict within Europe. It's a really good book, and I can actually say, hand on heart, I've read it. Oh, well done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite readable. Some yeah, argue, readable, I don't know whether yeah. you're going to say this, but some argue that maybe it gave kind of Hitler an excuse not to kind of, or could ignore the payments because it's like, look, even this man Keynes said that we are basically having to repay too much. It's not, you know, justifiable and therefore we can ignore it and move on. Is that a fair... I've not come across that. Okay. I mean, there's a plausibility to it, but that doesn't mean that uh, it's true. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but it certainly does... Uh lead to him achieving a certain kind of fame. 
And he also did say at one point that it probably uh, changed the nature of his career because the controversy surrounding it probably ruled him out from certain positions in the city. Right. So, um, so he, at that point or around that time, he starts to try and build up his uh, personal finances. He kind of wants to be independently wealthy. So he starts to speculate in, in stocks and shares and so on. And initially, he loses a packet. Hmm. So you kind of think, oh, financial genius. But then, to use sort of Donald Trump praise, he doubles down. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he comes back and, he, and he, he, he speculates once again. I mean, I think, again, probably like Donald Trump, he does manage to sort of acquire some independent backing. I was just going to do vertical commas there, which probably won't yeah, come across. He had to uh, sell two famous art pieces or something, didn't he? Did he? Yeah, that's right. Okay, I read this. Is that when he was losing all his money, he had to sell these two, and then he bought them back, or something like that. I read that. But, I, I, I didn't come across that. I think the impression I got was that he borrowed money off his his dad. There, there was a story else in private finance. Did you money. come across maybe maybe this maybe did you come across this story? I don't know whether this is true or not. About when he was doing some buying of grain, and then he didn't actually think that he was going to get that he was going to sell it on obviously you know right, buy and yeah. sell whatever but he then had to store it in the cambridge college oh, I, I did the not actual know physical product turned up or something that was ah uh, right okay yeah yeah so, i didn't know that but this is the this is the problem we're writing about Keynes. there's so many yeah sort of stories and we've got a very the his biography the sort of um it's authorized or not but the one everyone the sadelsky one Skidelsky, yeah yeah it's absolutely enormous yeah so I'm not sort of trying to sound like a complete for this time, but um, yeah. good luck if you want to take that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Keynes is, he wants to be independently wealthy and actually he does, sort of following his return to uh, investing, he does build up a considerable wealth. When he dies, I think he is rich to the tune of about, in modern day terms, about sort of tens of millions. But th- this is why I quite like Keynes. It's one of my favourite economists. Oh, yeah. Because... He puts his money where his mouth is. He's one of these dudes, which I don't, you know, which I kind of admire, where instead of just talking about it and theorising, he's out there putting his kind of thoughts into practice. He's got skin in the game. (laughs) Exactly my thoughts. Okay, he's not just hiding away in a room, putting together a load of maths equations, and then basically saying, oh, this will do, I've done this probability, and I can assure you this won't happen. He's out there. And similarly, with uh, you know, we can all carp about Brexit or whatever it may be. He is right in there mm. as a public intellectual, influencing, unsuccessfully in the first instance, perhaps with the Treaty of Versailles, but then later on, as we'll see with the Bretton Woods arrangements, which um, shape sort of post-war, the post-war Western world. He's right in there, and he doesn't have to do that. He's got loads of other interests mm. that he could be um, sort of engaged in. So he's an engaged intellectual. Yeah. And I think we got to admire that. Yeah. Um, so throughout the 1920s, he, um, he's got a variety of jobs, a bit of a portfolio career, if you like. He's writing, he's lecturing, he's tutoring, he's sort of uh, engaged in sort of fi- financial markets. I think he takes up a position on um, the board of a mutual fund. Um, but alongside that, he's starting to form views 
about the need for public works um, in order to engage demand and other things that will challenge the status quo and will form part of uh, the general theory. Um, one of the other sort of most famous publications he comes about, out with is also during the 1920s. He writes a book uh, called The Economic Consequences of Mr. Churchill. Mm. Have you come across that? I know that this is something to do with fixed exchange rates. It is. Mm. So, do you want me to talk about Yeah, go, go for it. Because <laughs> I think it's, it's important. So, the Churchill in this case is the Churchill we know, Winston Churchill. I mean, listeners may or may not know that before he was Prime Minister, he was also at times Home Secretary and also Chancellor of the Exchequer. And some would argue not a particularly successful uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer because one of his decisions was after World War One to return uh, Britain to the gold standard, which was... Um, fixed exchange rate system, if you like, in which uh, international transactions were settled by the transfer of gold. And we could go into that, but we don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> but the key point here is that not necessarily that the UK went back on the gold standard, but it was the level at which mm. we went back on the gold standard. So in other words, the, the pound was seen by many, particularly Keynes, to be overvalued. And this was seen as one of the, the causes of the um, mass, mass unemployment which hit the UK or Britain in the 1920s. So you see British exports being hugely overvalued and that having a massively neg negative impact on the UK economy. And Keynes again called that, he called it quite early and uh, wrote this book about it. Again, probably didn't make himself many friends. Mm by doing so but I think I'm right in saying Churchill later on said you know what Keynes was right we mm. shouldn't have done that well good old Churchill yeah and and uh, I think that's sometimes being used as a parallel for um, major and the exchange rate mechanism yeah how we went into that at maybe at too high yeah, rate yeah yeah and that was another time of high unemployment and then we needed yep. to obviously kind of maybe devalue Maybe could we link it to Greece a little bit? Maybe the fact that as part of the kind of fixed exchange rate of the euro, that they probably need to have a currency that they could devalue to try and get out of their economic woes at the time. Yeah. Slightly different case. Yeah, slightly different. But I suppose, yeah, I suppose it's having that flexibility to devalue your currency when necessary. I suppose there are similarities. Exchange there, rates for me are the hidden policy of monetary policy Ooh, do you know what I mean that sounds really in, that sounds really clever well <laughs> well people just go on about interest rates these days yeah and and don't mention the fact that you do have an exchange rate tool but yeah. people don't want to use it I suppose it's the free market obviously in action but well, I suppose you can't do both can you I mean at the moment one could argue our interest we are going down a bit of a rabbit hole here but uh, you can't really have an exchange rate policy and an interest rate policy mm. or with great difficulty because the interest rate, varying the interest rate is a large part of how you would vary the exchange rate. So we did used to, didn't we, up until yeah. uh, crashing out of the ERM. That's what we did, wasn't it? Yeah. Dirty floating. <laughs> it's, what it's, called. it's one of the ones that always makes students laugh, isn't it, when you talk about it? Managed exchange rates. Yeah. Dirty floating. I think China has a dirty floating exchange rate. Yeah. Yeah. You do say that in a slightly unnerving way. 
so we can move on to romance. Nothing dirty about this, but uh, Keynes gets married in the 1920s. So before he meets his uh, wife, he had been fairly uniformly involved in same-sex relationships. But he was a big lover of uh, ballet, big lover of the arts generally. Another little-known fact, he was in effect responsible for the setting up of the Arts Council. Mm, good. Um, and he was a big fan of ballet. Uh, do you like the ballet? No, but I did come across a fascinating fact. Uh, well, I say fascinating. Um, that you, are you going to say that he set up the Cambridge Arts Theatre? No. Ah, well, he, he set up the Cambridge Arts Theatre. Right. And uh, it was the first place that Margot Fontaine... Right. She's a ballerina, isn't she? She was a uh, <laughs> First danced Swan Lake oh. at the Cambridge Arts Centre. But there you go. And was the first place that Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party was performed. Well, I never. Two little facts there about the Cambridge Arts Theatre that you didn't need to know. <laughs> I find ballet a bit boring. I know that probably. I think I saw it once good. when I went to Russia. Yeah. It wasn't my thing. I took an early girlfriend to the ballet, obviously to try and impress her, mm. and I fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure didn't impress her. Oh. I just found it really dull. You know, I think. Um, I was chatting to someone about this the other day and they said, well, just try and see it as an athletic performance. You know, I'd admire the sort of athleticism of it, but I don't know. I just found it dull. Well, there you go. And I don't mind the opera. I've gone on to see an opera. Each to their own, isn't yeah. it? I mean, <laughs> I'm sure there's many of our listeners who like yeah. the ballet. Anyway, the, the reason we're talking about that is that uh, Keynes falls under the romantic spell of a well-known Russian ballerina, Lydia Lopakova. Mm. So, good quote here. She, she's separated from her husband, uh, who lives in America, and Keynes persuades Lydia to move to a flat closer to his Bloomsbury friend, friends and begins to advise her financially. <laughs> 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 so, I just thought that was brilliant. That's yeah. sort of how the romance started. Oh, that's nice. Like, Have you considered buying government bonds, Lydia? <laughs> so yeah he gets married in 1925 um, we've got a quote here from Lydia which I think is lovely dare I try a Russian please, please please do please do uh, actually, I need to work up to this you do develop my cranium Emily Menarochka and I'm so very glad I live with you and I'm intimate with your soul your breath and your kisses that's not bad do you think yeah no, I was quite I was quite yeah. pleased with that uh, apparently, she, she, she used to speak quite oddly, and he used to call it Lydia Speak. Oh, that's quite yeah. sweet. Yeah, it's it? nice, isn't it? Very romantic. Apparently, some of his Bloomsbury friends used to look down on her a bit, though. Yeah, I read that about yeah. the old um, the wolves. Sounds a bit, I think a bit like Yoko Ono. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think they kind of hated her a bit at first, but I think, unlike Yoko Ono, they did kind of come round to her in the end. Oh, that's nice. Though I did hear this story, because I was trying to find out for our food round, like, what did the Bloomsbury set eat? Mm -hmm. uh, and apparently, like, when they used to go around to each other's houses, they tend to put on a good spread, but not the Keyneses. Really? Bit mean. Bit little. <laughs> <laughs> There's some quote, I can't, I wish I'd written it down, but it's something about grouse or partridge, some game bird, and it's something like, there was more bones than grouse, mm. or something like that. So, Have you... No, we probably shouldn't ask whether you've... You've eaten both of those. Uh, Have you? Game birds? 
I have eaten game birds, but I don't know whether I've eaten grouse or partridge. I don't know. Mm, okay. I think I've eaten partridge. Get it as local butchering where. You don't get much meat, do you? No. This is the key. And it for dries me. out really. Yeah, quickly. and you just think, what's the point? He Let's gave me like. It's all flooding back now. Or maybe it was a pheasant. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he gave me this big lump of like fat to put on top to stop it drying out. I was looking at it thinking. Just like this big yeah. wadge of fat to go on top of the pheasant slash partridge, whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, nice. yeah, well, yeah. Nice, yeah. I would argue that uh, my favourite ever pie was a game pie. Wow. So I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> we need to get a pie in at some point. <laughs> <laughs> we need to find an economist who, in some sort of roundabout way, we can associate with pie. Okay. Even if it's something really tenuous, like a pie chart or something. <laughs> <laughs> Samuelson, maybe. Yeah. I reckon, I reckon he fits in somewhere. Anyway. Or just one who's a bit chubby, and then we can imagine that they're a lot Not of many pies. chubby economists, though, are there? No. When you look at them. Three, three friends in chubby? Anyway, let's move on. Let's move <laughs> on. I think we're into the 1930s now. He's beginning to gather together his views uh, that will come together in the general theory. During this point, he meets uh, members of the US elite, meets Roosevelt, for example. And that'll kind of come in handy later when it comes to the Bretton Woods negotiations or his position in the post-war negotiating uh, process because he's already developed some sort of informal relationships with um, a number of people in the, who are part of the American elite. Um, we could move on to this now. We could move on to some of his concepts. Yeah, you? let's do yeah. concepts because yeah. there's loads as, of them. As so part we've got to of rattle the them uh, concepts, we can talk about Bretton Woods. Okay, is that okay? Are we going to start with that? No, I thought we'd start with the general theory. Okay, yeah, is that okay? Yeah, go go for right. it. Do you want to explain it or shall I? No, you go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so right, I'm going to start in a kind of roundabout way in that. To a certain extent, the general theory is a response to what has gone wrong before. You remember the quote that we started the Adam Smith episode with about uh, how... I can't remember exactly, but it's something about practical men that yeah. sort of captured by econo- economists of 100 years previously and so on. So in other words, all the people in charge in the 1920s and 30s when the British economy is in really quite serious trouble, we're looking at mass unemployment... Jarrell March, uh, things like that. Um, they're really acting in good faith in that they're trying to carry out what is seen as orthodox economic theory and put that into practice in terms of their economic policies. And unemployment is absolutely key to this. So the classical theory is that unemployment will rectify itself. The government, in a sense, doesn't need to do anything. The labour market is a market like any other. And if there is excess supply in that market, in other words, unemployment, what needs to happen is the same as in any other market, is that the price, or in this case, wages, needs to fall. And once those wages fall, the market will clear again, and the problem of unemployment will be resolved. So in a sense, it's kind of like an automatic process. Bit like the body, you know, if you've heard of the concept of homeostasis, 
Like, if you're hot, you'll begin to sweat, it'll cool you down and stuff like that. So in a sense, within the economy, there is this automatic process in which if labour markets are left to themselves, they will automatically adjust to full employment in the long run. Right. Okay. So that's kind of the classical viewpoint. So Keynes is responding to that, and he's responding to that in the context of the 1920s and 30s when we have mass unemployment, and we've not just had it for a year or two years. It really is now quite deeply set in. And so Keynes is like, well... And wages have gone down, haven't they? Wages had gone down, yeah. absolutely, and that, that's a key point. So in a sense, wages had gone down, and yet we still had unemployment. So it seemed that the, the theories which... Um, had existed prior to Keynes weren't explaining the reality on the ground. So for Keynes, what needed to happen in order to jumpstart the economy again, in like a sort of bit of economic CPR, was the government in some in some way needed to uh, pump prime the economy and inject into the economy some kind of demand. Yeah. So we talk in economics about aggregate demand. So aggregate demand in the UK today would consist of consumption spending, so that's spending by you and I in shops, investment, so that's spending by firms on capital goods, machinery, factories and so on, government spending, and then we've got exports and imports, imports being a negative figure. So the problem here for Keynes was one of a lack of demand. So in a sense, firms aren't going to invest if they're not likely to make any profits. If people don't have any wages... They're not going to be spending. Therefore, firms are, are, are not going to be making any profits. So somehow, there needs to be an injection of demand into the economy. And for Keynes, various things could happen to try and uh, bring that about. But probably for him, the most uh, crucial element was that the government could not sit back and just leave things as they are. The government needed to intervene. The government needed to manage demand. And this is where we get sort of the famous quote in the long run we're all dead absolutely yeah and that relates to the idea people would say well because if you want to inject government spending that's your solution to the lack of demand if you want to inject government spending into the economy inevitably during a recession or a depression as it was there's going to be a significant lack of ta lack of tax revenues so the government will have to go into debt it will have to run up budget deficits in order to inject that money into the economy. So, in a sense, a classical theorist would respond to that and say, well, look, this money will have to be paid back in the long run. And that's the classic Keynes quote. Right. Ah, in the long run, we're all dead. Okay, like it. So, it's a, you know, it's a sort of... But this is the thing, like, Keynesian economics kind of is linked to the idea of demand management, isn't it? Absolutely. That's yeah. what you hear about, isn't it? Absolutely. And that demand management could take a number of forms. So the Keynesian prescription, if you like, in the 1920s and 30s was for looser fiscal policy. And this would, uh, in all likelihood, be a combination of tax cuts, but also public works. So by public works, we mean the government, in effect, paying for stuff to be built, mm. infrastructure projects. Yeah. Even there was a quote, I'm not sure it's by Keynes, but certainly by... Uh, people advocating this approach that you could almost pay people to bury money mm. and then pay other people to dig it up and that would be fine because it's getting money into the economy that money then uh, means that firms people begin to buy firms products 
Firms begin to make profits. They can then take on more workers and the problem of unemployment is, is resolved. And this is where we first come across the multiplier effect, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And this is another key concept in the Keynesian uh, understanding of how the economy works. And the multiplier effect refers to the fact that uh, one person's spending is another person's income. So let's, uh, let's give an example. So let's say in our local area, uh, we decide or the government decides to um, build a new hospital. So obviously you'll need to pay people to build that hospital. There will be the builders, the architects, the suppliers and so on. They then receive an income for all of their work. And that income then may go on and get spent in local shops, in local restaurants. The restaurant owners then have more money. They might then choose to spend on plumbers, on electricians and so on. So in other words, there's a ripple effect. Imagine uh, the government's initial injection of demand into the economy is like a, a rock being chucked into a, a lake. There's the initial splash, but then there's all these subsequent ripples, which mean that the overall impact of an injection into the economy is actually far more significant in its final effect on GDP. And that relates uh, a little bit to the marginal propensity to consume, isn't it? The MPC. It does indeed. So if I get £100 and I spend it at your place and then you might, you know, spend £80 of it, so your marginal propensity to consume is... 0.8. 0. 0.8. Yep. <laughs> Very good. And then that, that comes to another. So that's £800. And then that goes on to the next person. Mm. And look, we're seeing these kind of leakages going out, don't that's we? That's right, yeah. So every round of spending, the ripple book subsides a little bit. And it subsides because some of the money is withdrawn at every stage. So the key withdrawal is probably savings. People can save some of them, the extra money they receive. But there are also other withdrawals in the form of taxation. And also spending on imports, which is also a flow out of the economy. So eventually, that's why the multiplier dissipates. These rounds of spending don't carry on ad infinitum, because at each extra round of spending, some money is withdrawn. So, so three big things there already. We've got demand management, hmm. multiplier, multiplier to consume. Did he had something to do with the accelerator as well, didn't he? He did. Know much about that? <laughs> <laughs> We should do. It's to do with output and investment, isn't it? Go on then, you explain it. I can't. Oh. It's, not, it's no longer in the syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can't explain it. Um, the accelerator refer, refers to how um, consumption, uh, once consumption begins to increase, that entices new investment because of the firms will want to satisfy that, those new rounds of demand. That investment then accelerates economic growth and then GDP uh, increases still further and there's more there's more incomes the accelerate effect is sometimes seen as the explanation for why we have an economic cycle mm. because once you um, firms have done all the investment they want to do then in a sense at that point you're suddenly going to see uh, one element of aggregate demand investment diminish yeah and then in a sense that could be the the ball starting to roll back down the hill, if you like. Yeah. Interestingly, when we're talking about investment and also marginal propensity to consume and save, one of another, well, another key concept or another key aspect of Keynesian theory is the idea of 
what we might in modern parlance call business confidence or consumer confidence, and he called animal spirits. So in a sense, whether someone chooses to spend or save, whether a firm chooses to invest and borrow the money for that investment, will depend not just on interest rates, so the cost of that borrowing or the incentive to save, but also about their confidence about the future. And if you look in the 1920s and 30s when Keynes is writing, there's not a whole lot of confidence mm. around. So even though, uh, even if interest rates were lowered, which initially they weren't, uh, but let's say they had been lowered, would it have had that much of an impact anyway in the absence of business confidence? Mm. And I think there's a great parallel there, isn't there, with the 2008 financial crash? Because obviously they re reduced the interest rate from 4.5%, mm -hmm. whatever, to 0.5%. Mm. And, you know, classic economic theory would dictate that more people would borrow money and then mm -hmm. that would get the economy starting. But it didn't happen because yeah. of the lack of confidence. I remember an article uh, on the front page where a conservative MP was massively criticised about saying that she had seen the green shoots of recovery. And everyone was like, this is nonsense. But it was that kind of old idea that she argued that we've got to give people some signs, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. that the economy was going. And then from that everything would pick up yeah. and move on. And there but, is some yeah. truth in that. I mean, there, there, there is some truth in that. If people believe that the economy is going to improve, to a certain extent, it will, because people will then make the decisions to buy the new car or to build a new factory, which will then lead to the economy. And Th Thatcher did a little bit of that, I think, in the early 80s, because one of her famous quotes was, um, stop being a moaning mini. That's my little fact. <laughs> very good. Yeah, yeah, very good. And and it was the idea about stop talking down the economy. Yeah. Let's talk it up. Yeah. I mean, at the time, I think it was huge unemployment. But I mean, <laughs> it's that same idea about you know we're. I suppose again, I hate to say it, bringing Brexit, but this is I suppose the Brexiteers idea of mm. come on, let's talk up our economy. Yeah. Look, we we can do anything we want. Yeah. You know, outside of the European, we can be free to choose to do whatever. Yeah. And so there is that idea of yeah. confidence. Let's have some confidence in the great British public. Yeah, I do understand that. And there is some truth in it. But I suppose it's it's that kind of grey area between what is confidence and what is delusion, I mm. suppose. Hubris. Hubris. I love that I word. I like the word hubris. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think we've covered the idea of demand management. I, th I mentioned um, public works and certainly... By the way, Keynes is not just influential on this side of the Atlantic, but very much in America as well. And you can see uh, the New Deal program in America, where Roosevelt instigated um, large-scale public works as um, being influenced in part by Keynes. Though interestingly, on both sides of the Atlantic, some people argue that, to a certain extent, the recovery from the Great Depression was not really due to um, government actions in the form of fiscal and monetary policy, but really due to rearmament, mm, yeah, <laughs> which is slightly depressing. But it's the but in a sense, you can see why rearmament would work because in a sense, it's a if you well, like, it's, it's a, economics. exactly it's a massive yeah. injection of um, mm. public works, public works in this case being building tanks, planes, uh, mm. and so on. But it's only really um, towards the end of the nineteen thirties when unemployment begins to fall really quite significantly and I think that is due to rearmament. Mm. But as you say, you could argue that is a, a Keynesian prescription, albeit not necessarily what we one might want. Going back to public works a little bit and infrastructure, mm -hmm. um, 
Kane's often isn't really seen talking too much about the supply side. And yet, naturally, if you're building infrastructure through public works, yeah. I suppose you are boosting capital spending. And so, therefore, yeah. you've got that increased productive capacity for an economy, which yeah. then feeds in a little bit to that. But he's not really seen much on the supply side. No, he's he? not. But I suppose you could argue he's responding to a particular case in point, which is that the issue in the 1920s and 30s was a lack of demand. Mm. So in a sense, the US particularly, um, its supply side was fairly healthy. There was spare capacity in the UK economy. Um, there was huge numbers of potential workers um, prepared to work, willing to work at quite low wages and so on. So his idea was, at this point in time, there is not an issue on the supply mm. side. I mean, when people go on and criticise Keynes in the 70s and 80s, you could argue, well, you know, perhaps he would be saying different things now because the problems, the economic problems which exist now are different. But the issues that uh, were around in the 20s and 30s were very much a lack of demand in the economy. OK. So we mentioned fiscal policy. Uh, there is also monetary policy, which can also be used to um, adjust aggregate demand. Um and um, Keynes also talked about that at some length as well. Okay. Um, so I think we've covered demand management, hopefully. Uh, we've talked about the multiplier. Uh, we had a go at explaining the accelerator. <laughs> 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 Perhaps not that well. Uh, and we talked about public works. So I suppose the last area of substance that we need to debate with respect to Keynes is his activities at the Bretton Woods Conference. Okay. Now, do you know what the Bretton Woods Conference I is? I do, because you bought me a nice pint glass from Bretton Woods. I did, When indeed. you went there on your moon. Yes. So, uh, so I know a little bit about it. Yes. It's where basically the IMF and the World Bank were set up yep. in that, that kind of discussion about what should happen yep. after the Second World War about, I don't know, rebuilding. Yeah, countries. so towards the end of the, the Second World War, there was... Um, motivation on behalf of all the sort of world's major powers that they did not want a repeat of the economic problems that had allowed for the rise of uh, Hitler, that had allowed sort of fascism to take root, that allowed mass unemployment to take place in the 20s and 30s. So they wanted to put in place some um, international institutions that would guard against some of those problems. And we do see their sort of ancestors still around today to a certain extent. And Keynes was the chief UK negotiator at the Bretton Woods Conference. Bretton Woods, by the way, is in New Hampshire, in America. And the talks took place at Mount Washington Hotel in uh, Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. Nice, nice bit of detail. And I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's my best economics claim to fame, actually. No, it's great, isn't it? I mean, doesn't it show the passion that Pete has for uh, economics <laughs> that on his honeymoon... He went to Bretton Woods. I had a lovely afternoon tea there. And despite, initially I'd been thinking, well, we'll stay there. But then I looked at the eye-poppingly sort of high bill and I thought, no. But we went for afternoon tea then. It was lovely. Oh, good. Yeah. They had a whole little, we had little lobster sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> and they came out with this whole selection of different teas that you could choose from. How many legs does a lobster have? I don't know. You've got to guess. Oh, is this, is this a joke? <laughs> no, it was a quiz question the other day, right, and I thought, uh, you know. Six? No. Oh, how many? Ten. Does it? Yeah. Oh. 
I went to a lobster festival. Can I tell you that? No. When we were in a, when we were on our honeymoon as well, we went to the main lobster festival. And what was interesting about that uh, is just how much lobster people can eat. Mm. This massive tent you could go in, and you had to queue up. And then as you went in, saying, "What kind of lobster meal do you want?" And I was like, well, mm, "Just have a lobster." <laughs> but then there were options to have like three lobsters. Yeah. So That's America, though. Yeah. And I've got to say, there was some big eaters. Big eaters. Yeah. Yeah. Going for the three lobster option. <laughs> yeah. Thirty legs. Me, Thirty one, legs. <laughs> one lobster was plenty. <laughs> uh, so anyway, Bretton Woods. So what is this sided at Bretton Woods? Uh, as we've been discussing, it's where the economic systems are set up, which um, are really trying to stabilise the world economy in the post-war era. So one thing that was uh, settled there, which doesn't exist anymore was a pegged system of exchange rates. So a bit like the exchange rate mechanism right. we mentioned earlier. All currencies, or all major currencies in the world, would be pegged against the dollar. So you would have a fixed exchange rate. Okay. So not like today where, on any one day, you can go into Thomas Cook, Asda, Tesco. Where did you get your currency from? Uh, Debenhams last place. Oh, Debenhams. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't even know they did Yeah, currency. no, they gave a very good in- internet rate. Oh, well, you have to go in and yeah. say, I saw it on the internet, and then they give you it. And they... What, do, you, do you have to prove that? I'm, I'm trying to help Debenhams out here. I mean, they're in chaos, aren't they? Okay, well, Share good. price is 5p or something like that. I mean, they're on the way out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard it here first. Despite, well, you haven't heard it here first. Everyone everyone knows. Despite your intervention. Yeah, you just go and have a look in Debenhams <laughs> and why that's dying. Ooh. It's harsh. It's harsh. You but could fair. have just lost hundreds of people at jobs, <laughs> Talking down Debenhams. Yeah. yeah? The uh, great thing about Debenhams, though... On the high street, <laughs> is that is that it's the one of the few shops that has their own toilet. So if ever I'm around, lots of shops have got their own. No, toilet. that's not true. That's not true. Restaurants might, but um, Debenhams has a toilet. Is John Lewis will have a toilet. Is that because they've got cafes? No, I mean no. I mean <laughs> the Debenhams I'm thinking about has a toilet. I always visit on my little town walk. And do you do yeah. that? A particular time of day? No, I just I just know if there's a Debenhams in town, there's a toilet. Well, why are they on their knees? <laughs> With that kind of attention. <laughs> well, it's because it's people like me going in there using the toilet and then not buying anything. Right. So you're not sort of adding to passing trade? No. Sort of, no. Okay. It's my toilet. You're not toilet. like, oh, I've used your toilet. I feel obligated yeah. now to buy a bottle of water, for example. Well, I have a Debenhams card. So I think that in itself makes me feel like I could use their toilets. I don't, I don't. That's, that's genuinely true. Right. <laughs> okay, so anyway, Debenhams uh, exchange rate. Yeah. It can change on a daily basis. Well, anyone's. It's not just Debenhams. Yeah. Anyone's exchange rates can change. And our exchange rate, uh, the pound today, is determined by the interaction of supply and demand on um, the foreign exchange market. But this fixed exchange rate system, which existed from 1945 until the early early 70s meant that on any one day the exchange rate was fixed you knew exactly what a pound was worth in terms of dollars now within that you could occasionally devalue so you could say right okay where a pound is equal to five dollars we're not going to devalue and it's going to be equal to four dollars or something like that um and that was seen as, uh, you know, a bit of a sort of a weakness. So the government was always reluctant to do that. I mean, there are negative aspects, as mm. we can talk about another time, of 
devaluing the currency in terms of inflation, cost push inflation, and so on. Um, but you could you could devalue it within this pegged exchange rate system. So that was one thing that was set up, and again, that's to stabilize international markets. Right. And you could argue now that speculation on in, in international exchange rate markets is can be quite damaging at times. You know, isn't it? There's an economist who we could look at in the future. Lesson James Tobin. Oh yeah. Lesson I said then. Oh my god. Hmm. Uh, exciting podcast, I know. <laughs> the Tobin um, tax. The Tobin tax, yeah, yeah, which is a tax on foreign exchange speculation. Or now known as the Robin Hood tax. Oh, is it? I think. Oh, right. mm, from the Make Poverty History campaign. Oh, well, there we are. Okay. Um, so that's one thing that was set up. Uh, and that's, I suppose, trying to give certainty to businesses, to countries. Um, and because of that certainty, uh, that would foster international trade. Um, another thing that was set up around that time was the first round of talks on tariff reduction, uh, the general agreement on tariffs and trade. And that eventually, after several rounds of talks leading up to the 1980s even, became a permanent institution, the World Trade Organization. And that existed to try and prevent um, the protectionism, which was seen as one of the roots of the Great Depression. Yeah. So by protectionism, we mean countries putting tariffs on each other's products. Mm. Yeah. So Trump that, economics. Trump economics, mm. yeah. Uh, and I guess that's one of those people I think are a little bit too quick to make them perhaps, but this is one of those parallels with the 1930s, uh, the things that people come out with, Trump potentially engaging in protectionism as a little whiff of the 1920s and 30s. And that didn't end well. Yeah. So I think people are sort of making that analogy and then drawing it to its natural conclusion, I okay. guess. So uh, that was another thing that set up. And what that tries to do is every now and then, or well, all the time, pretty much, countries will meet together and try and sort of thrash out tariff reduction. And as we said last week, uh, no, not last week, the last episode of the podcast, uh, we'll be looking at Ricardo's comparative advantage. It relates oh, yeah. to that, doesn't it? A little bit of trade and the importance of trade for economic growth. Yeah, everyone is better off through trade, mm. or at least in theory. Okay. So two other institutions were set up. Also, the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. So obviously, at the, at the time, much of Europe particularly was in ruins. So you, you look at there an institution to sort of manage that reconstruction process. By the 1960s, it's taken on another role, which is to support uh, post-colonial countries, um, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but it, it's instigated initially to try and sort of engage in the reconstruction of, of Europe and so, and so on. Um, and the World Bank's a little bit controversial these days, yeah. Uh, but we can again perhaps talk about that some other time. Um, and lastly, there was the setting up of the International uh, Monetary Fund, the IMF. Now, this is where Keynes, interestingly, didn't really get his own way. He wanted a, a an alternative system for settling international transactions. What we ended up with was the IMF as it is now, which is supposed to kind of act as a bank. We sometimes talk about the World Bank not being a bank and the IMF being a bank. But if countries get into difficulties, then they can potentially borrow money uh, from the IMF. They can draw down on that. Uh, but what Keynes wanted was quite a different system uh, in which countries that ran current account surpluses as well as deficits would be uh, subject to some kind of uh, punitive measures, which is quite interesting. Mm. 
And what's interesting about that today is the Americans were fundamentally opposed to it because at the time they were the world's creditors. Whereas nowadays they probably quite like it because they run massive current account deficits. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And they probably want, you know, oh, China, yeah, China should be fined for what they're doing. Yeah, really. it's the joint responsibility issue. Yeah, mm. yeah. But in a sense, Keynes had a more sophisticated system, but the Americans uh, didn't see it as being in their um, interests. So they kind of vetoed it and said, absolutely not. What well, other interest? You know, we were talking about Soviet spies earlier. Mm. The chief US negotiator, a chap called Harry Dexter White, was later accused of being a Soviet spy. Very good. Nice little fact. Yeah, I thought it was. Uh, you can read up on that, though. It's quite an interesting area to read up on because it's, it's certainly something I didn't know about until I started doing some research. Keynes he, he he died during it? Keynes? Or, yeah. Did he not? No, no not long after it. Long and after I think it. So for, Didn't he fall some... ill? No. Yeah, he'd been ill. Uh, even before that, he'd had sort of um, health problems. Right. Um, but yeah, he died not long after that and some people saw it as due to sort of exhaustion. Right. Um but yeah, he'd not been well uh, for some time. So, um, I think that... Is there other things we need to cover? Or do we think well, we've, we've covered sort of... I've got an impression that I want to do. Oh, right. Okay. That's okay. Because uh, post, obviously, World War Two, Yeah. Keynesian economics took hold. Yes. And so there's a famous quote. <clears throat> I'm going to get ready for it. Um, by Richard Nixon. Now, Richard Nixon, the only normal kind of quote I can do is, I'm not a crook. I think it's quite good, isn't it? Good, yeah. Okay. And he said, we're all Keynesians now. Do you think, is that any good? That's my Richard Nixon. I mean, it's very niche. Yeah. yeah. Can I just say, this is a little, uh, I say interesting fact, it's not really. I was born in 1973. Right. And my parents wanted me to be called Richard. After Richard Nixon? No, and they just wanted me to call, call Richard. And they didn't actually eventually call me Richard because his nickname at the time was the Big Dick. Right. And so they put that, they put that as my middle name. Yeah, right, okay. So there you go. But anyway, I thought that's yeah. just a little aside. Bit of a statement, isn't it? Yeah, the Big Dick. <laughs> and right. they, didn't, well, they didn't want that of me. No, no, it's a bit of a, a bit of a double-edged sword. Isn't it? <laughs> right, okay, I think that brings us towards the end of uh, our first round. Jolly good. Yeah. Okay, so what do the critics say about Keynes? Well, once we get into the 1970s, I don't want this to be too much of a continuation of sort of economic history, but he starts to get a bit of a hammering. Yeah. Uh, and you start at that point to see the rise of uh, monetarism, a revival of classical ideas, and um, also just Keynesian ideas seemingly not really working anymore. Mm. Um, so if you look in the 1970s, you start to see unemployment and inflation rising at the same time. What do we call that? Stagflation. Stagflation. <laughs> well done. Yeah, so the stagflation issue, and this is particularly in the UK, you start to believe, well, hang on a minute, this is it doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be working. One of the concepts that we didn't talk about, which isn't a, an idea by Keynes, but was an idea developed by Keynesians, was what's called the Phillips curve, and this mm. was the idea that you could trade off through your sort of 
fine-tuning of the economy through your demand management, lower levels of unemployment with slightly higher levels of inflation, or vice versa. Mm. You could have lower levels of inflation, but you'd have to have slightly higher levels of unemployment. Um, but you started in the 1970s to get points to the northeast, if you like, of yeah. that curve, where inflation and unemployment seem to be rising at the same time. So I suppose you could argue that we're in a new set of economic circumstances. So just perhaps as Keynes was the response to the lack of demand in the 1960s, um, some people would argue, well, we need a different economic response to what are, what are a different uh, set of circumstances. Now, Keynesians do come back and say, well, hang on a minute. There were some peculiarities in the early 70s which led to this stagflation. There was a lot of cost push pressures. Um, in oil, terms oil, of oil, oil price, yeah, the oil price quadrupled in effect mm. in the early 70s with the, um, the rise of OPEC. And you also see trade union power probably at its height. And what that leads to is uh, unions being able to demand very high wages and that, again, uh, feeding into inflation. And I might be wrong here, but Keynes wasn't a big fan of trade unions, was he? No, um, Keynes was not a, uh, in any way, a Labour Party member, for example. He was not associated with the Labour movement. Um, he was, I think he would have disliked the um, emphasis on the collective over the individual, I think mm. on a philosophical level. Uh, but also, he wasn't about government control of the means of production. He was about uh, government uh, manipulation, if you like, mm. of demand which is quite a different thing. I mean, it is government intervention, but it's not... Um, control of demand still leaves quite a significant role for the free market, for the invisible hand, as Adam Smith would have put it. And Keynes would have been perfectly comfortable with that. Um, so other, re other sort of criticisms of Keynes uh, that, that come out, um, one is about crowding out. Are you familiar with the concept of yes. crowding out? Do you want to explain it to the listeners? Well, <clears throat> when the government are borrowing money, it basically means that there's less for private businesses to borrow. Yeah. Or if they're using resources generally, it means there's less resources for the private companies to borrow, which basically crowds them out. And the argument is that private businesses are more efficient users of it. Yeah. Okay. So in a nutshell, the way I always explain it to my kids, imagine there is a, a big bucket in the room which has all the nation's savings in it which potentially either firms or the government can borrow. If the government's elbowing the firms out of the way to draw on that bucket, there's less available for firms. Mm. And then and as the rate say, goes up as well. What's that, sorry? Yeah, and the interest rate goes up to reflect the scarcity of those mm. funds. Um, so that's crowding out, and that was seen as a, as a critique, and probably always had been, of the idea of running deficits. Uh, but that became uh, more uh, in vogue to, to criticise sort of Keynesian approaches for crowding out. There is also probably what I think is a valid criticism, a perfectly valid criticism, which is again of hubris. Right. Which is governments really thinking that they understand the economy uh, well enough to sort of fine-tune it, as it were. Yeah. Almost on a month-by-month -month basis to think, do we need a little bit more, a little bit less demand? Yeah. Now, again, I say that's a Keynesian approach rather than an approach Keynes would advocate because he's writing in a very particular circumstance in the 1920s and 30s, where really, the analogy I used earlier, is the economy needs a bit of CPR. But by the time you get to the 50s and 60s, 
there's an overconfidence, yeah. firstly, perhaps in the quality of economic statistics, because economic statistics are often revised several times in the years after they're initially published. So the idea that you can sort of manipulate the economy on a year-by-year -year or month-by-month -month basis rather than respond to quite extreme events, as, as Keynes was advocating, uh, is probably a little bit hubristic. Yeah. yeah. But again, I think that's what I said earlier on about maybe that's a criticism of Keynesian economists rather than Keynes himself. Um, there's a, isn't there a quote from Callaghan? Have you got a quote from Callaghan here? I haven't got a quote from Callaghan. I Have think Callaghan famously said at a Labour conference about how, uh, you know, it's never been right that we can spend our way out of a recession if it ever has been or something like that. Oh, he talks right, yeah. about this yeah. and it was like a big thing that basically, look, we've got to stop borrowing money. Yeah. yeah you know, we have to start seeing some changes going on. And it's basically a critique of Keynesianism. Anyway, yeah. There you go. I mean, you see a real splintering of economic thought in this period. So you start to get Keynesians, Neo-Keynesians, Neo-Neo-Keynesians, right. uh, monetarists, rational expectations, adaptive expectations. There's loads of them. Yeah, lots going I on. I mean, some of them, the difference between them is pretty slim. It's a bit like people's front of Judea, Judean people's front. <laughs> <laughs> and the people who say economics and economics. Oh, I didn't know that was a... Is that a thing? Well, I think it is, isn't it? Oh, is it not? Well, you got me thinking. What do you say? Economics. 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 Economics in 10. Economics in 10. I think I say economics. Oh. Well, there you go. Anyway. Uh, one last thing, then, before we sort of... Because critics... We will come to critics in a big way when we do an episode on Friedman. Right. He's yeah, like he the skeletor. Yeah. Although, having said that, he obviously had a bit of a debate with Hayek as well, didn't he? He did, yeah. Hayek was quite disparaging about Keynes' yeah. economic theorising. And again, I'm sure many people have seen this if you're interested in economics. If you go onto YouTube and there's a brilliant rap battle between Keynes and Hayek, <laughs> that is well worth watching. Is it brilliant? Yeah, no, it is. It's really, really good. You show it to students and, and it explains both points of view really, really well. Can I finish off this section? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to finish it off with a quote from Friedman. So this, because we're talking about critics of Keynes. So one big criticism is that the Keynesian approach to demand management encourages big government. So in a sense, in a recession, governments increase their spending. But after that recession, government spending tends to remain high. And we tend to just have carrying on from that point, high tax and spend regimes. And this is a quote from Friedman. Nothing was so permanent as a temporary government program. Yeah, it's good. Do you like that? Yeah, I like that. It's a good quote. I should have done it in an American accent. Yeah, you should have done. <laughs> in a Chicago. Was he from Chicago? Well, I know he went to the oh, Chicago no, that's a good school. Point. We'll get on to that when we yeah. do his thing. Yeah, fair point. So we're moving on to our next round. Food time. What are we eating today, Pete? There's a spurious link to the economist in question. I'm hoping it's as tasty as oysters. And when I say I hope, that really means I hope not. The aftertaste lasted for two days. Get out. <laughs> it, did, it did add salt on my lips. Did you? Yeah, oh, I could taste it. Not that bad. For a long time. Just try and slurp them down. Anyway, uh, are we pausing? Uh, we're not pausing just yet. I'm going to explain what we're going to get. Okay. Okay. So, 
I want uh, you to go back in time. In Cambridge. But you're not going to a pub or a club. Clubs. Well, clubs probably did exist in those days. No. You're going to a meeting of your secret society, <laughs> the Apostles. Oh, my word. You're going to debate matters of the heart. Maybe sort of lofty thoughts, philosophy. Uh, talk about homoerotic love. Dare I say it? Uh, and you, so you're going to go to the, the house of one of your fellow apostles or the rooms, digs, whatever you call them. And Mansion, probably. Do you think? They're all at uni, aren't they? Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, okay. Uh, so you're going to meet at the rooms of whoever is presenting this week's paper. Brilliant. Have to prepare a paper and they all talk about it and then you debate it. Uh, and basically, a signed speaker delivers a paper and then they have a vote at the end of it. And it's a tradition that the the vote, what the the nature of the vote doesn't bear any relation to the debate that's just gone before it. So you could have been talking about, does absence make the heart grow fonder? But then at the end is the vote is eggs or omelettes. <laughs> really? Yeah, isn't that weird? <laughs> I read that and I just thought, yeah. Eggs nice. odd, isn't it? Eggs what, or omelette? Yeah, I know, I don't know, it doesn't make sense. But anyway, what they used to eat on these Saturday nights... Can I just say, just quickly, before you go into that, you can. Um, if there are students listening, and I hope you know there will be, wouldn't that be a brilliant thing to do? What's that? Set up your own secret society. Yeah. Uh, one person comes along with a idea. You say it, talk about it, and then finish off with a vote. I mean, that's a brilliant thing to do when brilliant. you're young, isn't it? And youth, and you've got those ideas. Yeah, you can really do that. I really yeah. encourage that. Anyway, sorry. So, what they used to eat was what they called whales, but was in fact sardines on toast. Brilliant. So that's what we're going to eat. We're going to eat sardines on toast, and they also had coffee. So you're going to get coffee. It sounds like an odd combo, <laughs> but we're going to try it. Yeah? Love it. Okay, so we're going to pause there while I go off and make our whales. Right, we're going. Yeah. Back in the room. <laughs> Stop it. That was the wonderful sound of Gavin crunching on his whales, his mm. sardines on toast. Any quick feedback? Well, I liked it, to be honest. Uh, and the coffee goes nicely with it. Yeah, we were I... just discussing as well uh, about why maybe it was called whales. Like a little joke. Obviously, they're little small fish. As opposed to... <laughs> yes. Anyway, right. Well, that is our food round. Our food bit. So here we go. So, what is your favourite story about John Maynard Keynes that you came across when reading up on him? Okay. I didn't find anything that funny. Right. But the best story I've got is basically when he was working for the India office, he was really bored. Right. And he said his proudest achievement was shipping some pedigree bulls out to India. To, and that was it. <laughs> well, apparently it was very successful. In many respects, uh, um, I was quite good because I know, obviously, Winston Davis has just died. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I thought that might be an eight and a half hot mum story coming up. Yeah, which might have been just, slightly... It started off promisingly. Like, you know, you can imagine some amusing stories about bulls. But... Um, <laughs> It's just basically he took 
bulls out, and that was his proudest achievement, getting the bulls out to India. But it did work. Apparently, they were greatly superior. Oh, good, good on, good old Keynes. Good I talked about the meanness, the grouse bones. Yeah. Yeah, but there's nothing that funny. I did find a funny picture of him sort of doing some kind of Morecambe and Wise little dance with his wife. Oh, that's, that's quite sweet. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, there we are. <laughs> so, um, moving on to our film round. Now, I didn't know this, but I looked on Google to see whether had anyone played uh, Keynes in a film. And funnily enough, The Economist had actually done a whole article following the John Nash thing about right. wouldn't it be good to see certain people and, and the films yeah. they make. Anyway, here we go. Uh, who would you choose? I'd give you the three, okay, out of Eddie Redmayne. Now, he went to Cambridge, Trinity College, Cambridge. <laughs> so, I mean, he and he's pretty posh. And if you're saying Keynes was posh. He was posh. Yeah. Sasha Baron Cohen... Who went to Christ College, Cambridge. Right. So I've chosen two Cambridge dudes there. Well, I've got to say, there's and a slight Borat look about Cambridge. Yes, and that's why my next one is Rami Malek. Yeah. Uh, or you can suggest someone else. I think I'm going for Rami Malek. We've already seen that he can sport a good moustache in Bohemian Rhapsody. Sexually... You know, ambidextrous, shall we say, as well. I think that will um, go down well. He's, he's got the experience of playing that kind of role. Okay. okay. Well, I, I don't know about Rami Malek. <laughs> That's what I was worried about there. Yeah, I thought yeah. we were going to get sued. I so, mean, there's aren't other sort of posh, intelligent people you could go for. Yeah. Like Ian McKellen or Patrick Stewart. But I like Rami in, Malek. In, in maybe the old... Uh, maybe like... Um, you know when McKellen plays Holmes as an older man? Yeah. You could, maybe. Anyway. Kane's at Bretton Woods. You could get McKellen. That would be really good. Good yeah. good film. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thou shalt not pass! <laughs> Thou shalt not pass your legislation! <laughs> yeah. I like it. I see what you've done there. You've yeah. added on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we've gone for Rem- Remy, Rami Malek. Rami Malek. Excellent. So, as always, we're trying to appeal to the younger demographic. Now, I haven't done any grime um, oh, stuff yet, but don't worry, I've got some suggestions later on that we can link into that. But we want to know, how would Keynes be represented as an emoji? Okay. I've thought about this. There's a good moustache. You could, you know, like you get that Poirot sort yep. of emoji okay. where he's got like a monocle. Yes, I know the one. Tash. Yep, I've got it. Something like that, just like outline of Kane's face, little tash. Yep. Could end up looking a bit Hitler, though. We're not careful. But no, it's a different sort of moustache, to be fair. Okay. Or something to do with the multiplier. You could get like a multiplication sign, but maybe made out of sardines. Right. It's a bit niche. Well, we've had this discussion before, Pete. You can't suggest emojis that don't exist. Why not? They're being created all the time. We could get someone to create them. We've we've had this discussion before. You've got to choose an emoji. (laughs) Like your invisible hand emoji. It doesn't exist. So we've gone for a waving hand emoji. Okay. What emoji are we looking for here, Pete? Uh, Well, have you got any suggestions? (laughs) No. Fish? (laughs) I would go, maybe, what about a bull? A bull. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. bull, because you've got bull markets then as well, haven't you? you Animal talk. spirits yeah, and yeah. stuff like right. that. Okay, we'll go for that. Bull it is, and he was quite bullish, wasn't he? He was. Yeah. A. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, what books would you recommend if people wanted to learn more about Keynes, even though they've learned so much throughout this podcast? <laughs> Maybe too much, some might say. Yeah. Um, so, it's out of print, but a great book as an introduction to Keynes is Keynes and After by Michael Stewart. You can get second-hand copies of it really easily on Amazon. Um, I hate to say Amazon because I don't really like Amazon, but I'm sure you can get it elsewhere, but it's a great book. Yeah. Fantastic introduction to the time, the life of Keynes, his theories, the response to those theories. It's a really good book. Yeah, uh, um, and, and, and that's one even I've read. Yes, yeah. Okay. So, entry-level readers. <laughs> <laughs> If you want to read some Keynes in the original, which, as you know, is a, is a running motif of this yeah. uh, podcast, Economic Consequences of the Piece, dead easy to read, and you'll get a flavour of his his original voice. I've got one of his books, an original. Have you? Mm. Where did you get that from? Uh, I bought it in a bookshop. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so what book is it? It's not the Economic Consequences of Peace. It's how the war should be paid. Ah, yeah, how the war should be paid for, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so there you go, I've got that. Oh, good. Uh, at so home. you could read that. I could read some Seeing as you're, original Keynes. we're pushing reading Keynes in the original. Yeah, okay. Are you going to read it? No. No. <laughs> no, it's one of my display books. Right, okay. There's a very long biog by Lord Skidelsky, uh, as we've we mentioned. mentioned before. He is ultimately the... The man. Yeah. If you want to look at Keynes. And there's 29 volumes of Keynes Collected Works. Mm. Okay, very yeah. good. Great. Uh, I've got two that I want to say. Um, Icon Books produces brilliant graphic guides mm -hmm. called Introducing. Right. So, I mean, they do Introducing Capitalism, Introducing Economics. They're absolutely superb, Introducing Marx. And they do have an Introducing Keynes, which is tip-top lollipop. And... Uh, when the 2008 kind of crash or 2009 kind of crash happened, mm -hmm. I found myself in um, uh, Sal Salamanca. Yeah, Salamanca. Yeah, it's yeah. like the kind of Cambridge of Spain, isn't it? Yeah. That's what they say. Could you say that in a Spanish accent? <laughs> no, no. And yeah. uh, I read Paul Krugman's, is that how you say it? Or yeah, Krugman, Krugman, yeah. Krugman um, yeah. Return of Depression Economics. Right. Which yeah. was a really quick, easy, but brilliant read. So I would recommend that good. as well. So we've got some good recommendations yeah. there. Okay. Okay. Uh, if Keynes was a boxer, what do you think his walk-on music would be? Now, can I just say, just quickly, obviously in the rap battle video, yeah, they are playing boxers. Oh. So mm. it ties in there quite nicely. Well, first thing I'd say, there's some. I'm not sure he'd be comfortable with this. Right. He was a bit of a conscientious object at one point. Right. But there again, was he? You know, he's there sort of serving in the treasury. He sounds like he's quite sporty as well. I reckon he'd like a bit of boxing, wouldn't he? All right. Yeah. So, uh, I've got... He's a confident chap. All right. So I thought maybe you're so vain, Carly Simon. <laughs> okay. Yeah? It's not that macho, is it? Yeah, I think when you're walking on. Because uh, he's quite a clever clog as well. Smarter Than You by The Undertones. To be honest, I've not heard it. I just saw the title. <laughs> Undertones quite rocky, aren't they? Yeah. So it gives you it gives you a bit vibey, yeah. bit vibey. I reckon he'd want something classical though. 
like a bit of Wagner or something. Oh, okay. Ride of the Valkyries. Yeah, okay, with his hoodie on. Yeah. Yeah, is that it? Yeah. Well, I have got, I've got, I've got two. Go on then. I've got, uh, obviously, my grime artist I want to mention, oh, um, Lady Leisure. <laughs> and uh, she's got this wonderful song called yeah. Juice. Juice. Now, you'll see, my, my theme is a little bit, um, is this idea that he wanted to get the economy started. Right. And so I think, like, grime music for boxes is always pretty on trend. Yeah. So he'd come on to late. it's all about, I've got the juice. I've got the juice. So it's like adding, like getting the demand going in the economy. On that same vein, this is quite thin, uh, yeah. Pinks, oh, let's yeah. get this party started. Yeah. You know, I could see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's now, get this economy started. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, as an aside, yeah. quick uh, question for you. What one song features Keynes in its lyrics? Oh, I do know this. Do you know what? I was thinking about this the other day. What is it? Is it Deacon Blue? And the song? Dignity. Very good. Well done. Yeah. Features Jomaina Keynes. Now, uh, interestingly... Sitting down, Ricky. Drinking... Oh. Yeah, no, reading reading Maynard Keynes. Yeah. Sitting down, Ricky. Reading Maynard Keynes. Now, I found out something quite interesting about this. Yeah. uh, That a few years back, they wanted to create the album of Scotland. Right. right. So STV run this um, kind of votes. Yeah. So they're going to put this compilation together, three 70s songs, three 80s, three 90s and three noughties. And Dignity mm-hmm. came number one, voted by the Scottish public as the number one 80s song. Dignity. Were the Proclaimers around in the 80s? They, they came second with Sunshine on Leith. See the way I know the other positions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> They came first in the... I can't believe Deacon Blue beat the Proclaimers. Well, what's, what's quite fascinating about it, because it caused yeah. a lot of hoo-ha, because Simple Minds, one of the biggest yeah. ever Scottish bands, didn't even feature on the album. Wet, wet, wet. Wet, wet, wet were not featured on the album either. Wow. I mean, it's quite scandalous. But anyway, that was STV. Yeah, um, yeah. so... Oh, one, one more suggestion I had was uh, The Osmonds. Right. Yeah, because um, Animal Spirits... Crazy horses, <laughs> and that, I love that song. I love that song. He's got a real drive to it. And you can imagine the whole crowd as as Keynes is walking in, crazy horse, and everyone going, and I think that would work an absolute treat as walk-on music. So, oh my God, let's go for that one. Who's <laughs> sold it? To yeah. Me. Okay. Thanks. Right, Johnny Good. So, we've now got Poetry Corner. Poetry Corner. So, you're going to obviously say the first two lines. Now, last uh, podcast, I did say that John Cooper Clark is probably the best way to read poems. Yeah. Now, I think Pam Ayres is another one. Now, <laughs> I've been practising my pa- Pam Ayres. My name's Pam Ayres. And I, I kind of thought about saying that in that vibe, but I don't think I can sustain it throughout the whole poem. So, what do you okay. think? Well, up to you. Good start and okay. see how you go. Okay, well, let's go for it. So, John Maynard Keynes. Who's the economist that famously said, in the long run, mate, we're all dead? 
John Maynard Keynes was his name, and demand management was his game. Very influential between the wars, thought <laughs> German debts would prove too sore. And using his mathematical skills, he knew they couldn't pay their bills. But no one listened, they had to be harsh, which led to the guy with a small moustache. Back in Cambridge he traded away, and wrote a book that's influential today. Many people call it the general theory, because the much longer name was rather dreary. He argued markets took too long to adjust, and that government intervention was a must. So now we have Keynesian economics, solving problems that the market can't fix. But in the 70s, what hampered a nation with a new phenomenon called stagflation? And Keynesian economics found it hard to explain why prices rose without employment gain. <laughs> so his ideas lay dormant for 40 years until the banking crash made them reappear. And what would he make of austerity? He'd say, you haven't learned, son, from history. Oh, I can't believe you kept it up. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well, thank you. I did, I did struggle uh, throughout that. Yeah. But anyway. Now, just one final thing. Uh, before I ask you the final question, which is, um, like you know, do we like him? Um, many students ask, was Milton Keynes named after Milton Freeman and John Maynard Keynes? <laughs> now, generally, it's a true thing. Right. Now, I thought I'd look it up. OK, and obviously it's not Milton Freeman. That's ridiculous. Some, yeah. some suggestion it may be John Milton. But this is what I found out. So this is to answer that question. Apparently, in Milton Keynes, there's a place called Middleton, first right. mentioned in the Doomsday Book of 1067. Right. And in the 13th century, this had become Middleton Keynes, right. after the village's feudal masters, the De Keynes. <laughs> Since all Keynes are descended from this family, you could say Minor Keynes is named after oh. the place, not vice versa. Got it. Well, so there I you did go. not know that. Yeah, I thought that was a nice, interesting little... Students really ask you that. Yeah, all the time. Oh, they always go, Milton Keynes, is that like Milton Freeman? No. Anyway, there you go. So, uh, the verdict. What do we think of him? Do we like him? Would we hang out with him and his Bloomsbury gang or the secret societies? Yes. I like him. Um, he's like Adam Smith in the sense he's a man of his time. Yeah, But I think he would have been adaptable. I think you could plonk him down today. He's a modern man, isn't he? And he kept to grips with things. I think he would be um, adaptable. I think he'd probably... Be, maybe he's what we need today. Someone to write a sort of general theory for how things are now. Like that. Yeah. What a lovely so, end. Uh, I did think, though, you said about hanging out with him. Um, you know, like we said, we probably would go to the pub with Adam Smith. I planned a whole day out with Keynes. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> you like this. Yeah, yeah, go go for it. So, morning... We go and meet him at the National Gallery. Nice. He sort of gives us a tour and you know of his favourite pictures and informs us, you know, informative about the pictures, where they came from and yep. why he likes them. Yeah, I think we'd really enjoy that. I think we'd learn a lot from him. Yeah. But then we go to that pub near the National Gallery that you always take me to. Chandos. The Chandos game. Yeah. And get him to play darts. Game of darts. Because yep. I think he'd be really quick at adding up the numbers. <laughs> but also, we could get him to imbibe a few drinks 
and we wouldn't drink because then we'd probably get him on the same intellectual level as us. Like it. I think it'd take probably five pints. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, we'll start joining in. Yeah. Because I think basically if we spent time with him, he'd think we were pretty much idiots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that that would be my plan. Oh, that's brilliant. And we, and yeah. there's a national English national opera next door if it all goes yeah, yeah. pear shaped. Something a little bit. He's probably got. He'd probably have a box. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that that sounds really fun. Great. So So that's it. We like him. Yay! Good old Keynes. Yeah. He's my. I'm going to say now he's my favourite economist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yet. Yeah. I mean, there could be someone in the future. Yeah. Who I I really like. Um, Anything I think we've done. So who are we going to do next time? We are going to do. Hayek. Hayek. Hayek, excellent, Hayek, brilliant. Yeah. Well, that's the end. Uh, we would like to thank you for listening and hope that you will listen to our next podcast. Uh, thanks once again to our friend Nick for his post-production work and all other advice given that makes this podcast sound mildly professional. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Economics in 10, where you can see a wonderful painting of Keynes and other links related to this podcast. Goodbye for now.